This morning I want to look at an encounter Jesus has with a young Pharisee in Mark 12. Mark 12, 28. Let me uh, set a little context here for you. A few days before this encounter, Jesus had uh, come into Jerusalem, what's called the triumphal entry. He'd been riding on a, on a donkey. The people shouted, Hosanna, the, 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 the Savior's here, the, the Messiah's here. The, the, the uh, religious leaders came to him and said, stop this, this is blasphemy. Don't let them say that about you. And Jesus essentially implied, I'm not going to stop them. What they're saying is true. And even if they stopped, the rocks would start shouting out. Well, then Jesus went from there over to the temple where he chased out all the money changers and all of the uh, the merchants there who had set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. See, the court of the Gentiles was the area that God designated for people from all over the world, from all the other countries to come and to get a taste of who God was. It was a, it was a place to be uh, available for them to come and to pray and to petition God and to be drawn into the worship of the true God. But the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, they didn't care about that. That was wasted space. So they filled it up with uh, merchants and money changers who could sell sacrifices, change money. And this infuriated Jesus that these people cared so little for something that was so important to his father. The lost of other nations, of other people around the world. But again, Jesus chasing the, uh, the, the money changers, the merchants out really annoyed those religious leaders. They're the ones that had authorized the use of the court of the Gentiles for commercial purposes. See, they started seeing that Jesus really was a problem. He was a threat to them. So they began to plot how to uh, to destroy his popularity with all the people. Now, their whole purpose, their motive was to protect their position, their control. So Jesus tells them a parable about what happens when people start fighting with God, trying to keep control. He points out, he warns them that the the ultimate end of that, the, the final atrocity, will be that they will hate God, they will, they will uh, reject the Son of God, and even kill Him. You know, whenever leaders stop asking the question, what's right, what does God want, and focus on the question of how do I keep control here, as soon as that starts happening, they find themselves fighting with God. Anyway, these uh, leaders uh, really didn't take Jesus' warning to heart. They just made him all the more angry at him. And they began to plot how to, to discredit him, how to, to make him lose faith, face in front of people. So they sent out teams to go and try to trip Jesus up publicly, make him embarrass himself, ask him a question that he couldn't answer, or that if he answered, he'd get in so much trouble it would ruin his whole uh, his whole popularity, it would ruin his position with the people. So they sent out these teams, and uh, each one of these teams came with a different set of questions that they had worked out, and every time, Jesus comes out on top. No contest. So they send another team in with another set of questions, thinking that this one will trip him up. But they can't trip him up because Jesus is honest and he's loving. He's straightforward. He's a man of integrity. And every time they come at him, it just shows up their own hypocrisy, their own superficiality, their own shallowness. Well, while all this was going on, all of these questions were coming at him. There was one young man, uh, we're told in, in Matthew's Gospel, that he was a Pharisee. He was one of the part of one of these teams that came to trip Jesus up. 
He was an expert in the law. And in the middle of all these challenges, he seems to have a very honest, sincere question. Look at verse 28, Mark 12. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and all your understanding and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. You see, the last question that this... um, this young Pharisee had heard put to Jesus was from a group of Sadducees. These, these Sadducees were the liberals of their day. They didn't believe in much of the Bible. They only accepted five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels or demons or heaven or hell or resurrection. They thought, once you're dead, you're dead. It's over. And so they came to Jesus, and they thought they had a real good question for him. They said, okay, there's this woman... She marries this man who's got six brothers. That guy dies. She marries another brother. He dies. She ends up marrying all seven of them. Now, you'd think by about the third or fourth brother, these guys would wise up and stop marrying her or at least stop eating or cooking. But they said, okay, now she's married all seven of them, and now she dies and goes to heaven. Whose wife will she be in heaven? Jesus says, You guys don't know your Bibles. There is no marriage in heaven. No one is married in heaven. And then he says, And about the uh, rising of the dead, haven't you heard in the story about the bush, he's referring to when Moses came to the burning bush, haven't you heard in the story about the bush how God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And his point is the tense there. I am, not I was, I am, implies and makes it clear that those guys are still alive, even if they're not on earth. Otherwise, God would have said, I was the God of Abraham, but he's dead now. He's gone. When you're dead, you're dead, and it's all over. He says, no, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they still exist. You see, even the the tenses of Scripture are important. Every detail of Scripture is reliable trustworthy. And the reason we believe that is because Jesus believed that. We get our opinion of Scripture from His. You know, if we are His disciples, we learn from Him. We follow His lead. Anyway, why do you think that Jesus used that passage to establish the resurrection? You know, it's not the strongest passage in the Old Testament. He could have gone to, to uh, Psalm 73, where David says, After all of these things, after my life, God, then you will receive me into glory. Job, in chapter 19, says, After I die, I will see God. Isaiah 
says that the, the dead shall rise. Daniel says some will rise to uh, everlasting life, others to everlasting contempt. See, there's a lot of passages throughout the Old Testament that would have been very clear proof texts for Jesus. Why did he pick that one from Exodus? Well, if you remember, he's talking to Sadducees. They don't accept the rest of the Bible. So right off the top of his head, Jesus goes straight to the portion of the Bible that they would understand, that they would identify with, that they would accept. And there's a, there's a principle of evangelism here. And when you're dealing with people who don't accept the authority of Scripture, it doesn't do much good to just quote Scripture at them. It doesn't make a lot of sense. They don't understand it. See, what Jesus did is He moved to some common ground. And He talked to them on, on, on that basis, starting from there. Now, we always want to use the truth from Scripture. That's our source of objective truth. But we don't necessarily quote it to those who are not under its authority. It's not very effective. But then, as they begin to move toward uh, seeing the authority of Jesus Christ, then we can spend more directly um, showing them what His Word says. Because again, the reason we are under the authority of this book is because we are followers of Jesus Christ. We are under His authority. Anyway, this teacher of the law was very impressed. He saw how well Jesus knew His Bible. He saw how well Jesus handled it. He, he really appreciated the, the subtlety of Jesus' argument, how, how Jesus was even uh, able to look and to, to, to deal with the details. And so this guy comes to Jesus. I think by this time he had lost all of his plans to trap Jesus. He had forgotten all about tripping Jesus up. And he really wants to, to hear what Jesus has to say about something that he has been working through himself. Something he has been struggling with himself. You know, I'm convinced this guy was absolutely sincere. This is the only one of Jesus' questioners through this whole section that Jesus doesn't rebuke. In fact, Jesus affirms him. He says, you're close, man. Keep going. Keep thinking. Keep working it out and looking at the Scriptures and thinking it through deeply for yourself. You're almost there. Then that uh, last sentence in verse 34, I think the reason for that where it says, and from then on no one dared ask Him any more questions. I think that was because not only were the religious leaders losing their arguments, now they're starting to lose their people. People are listening. Even some of the leaders are saying, this guy's got something to say. And they're starting to to move over toward Jesus, starting to listen to what he has to say. Well, again, I'm impressed with this guy's hunger for the truth. His hunger for what's right and for what's true seems to overwhelm and, and distract him from competing with Jesus. His His loyalty to the truth and what's right is greater than his loyalty to, to his peer group. Remember, he came as part of a team who already thought they were right. Their whole mission was not to find truth. Their mission was to discredit Jesus, was to show Jesus was wrong, to show the people that Jesus was not somebody to be trusted. But in the midst of that process, this man's loyalty to what was true was greater than his loyalty to his friends. And that takes some courage. I remember when I was in college, we had um, this large plaza in front of the university center, and, and often debates would take place out there, uh, discussions would develop, 
And one time there was this uh, discussion going between this guy who was a member of, of a religious cult and a small group of Christians that I knew. And then all around them was uh, a bunch of people, maybe 50 or 60 other people, just standing around watching, enjoying the, uh, the show. And as they began to argue, tempers began to rise, faces started turning red, people started yelling at each other, and it really got to be a, a bad scene. I was one of the, the outer group watching in, and I started to get embarrassed for what was happening here. But I can remember the, uh, the respect I had for the courage of one of those young Christians. He stood up, and he turned, and he stopped the other Christians, and he rebuked them, and he turned to this guy, and he apologized for the discourteous way that they had been treating him, that they had been arguing with him. And I thought, that guy did what was right. He, he looked like he lost the argument, and he didn't care. He looked like he was being disloyal to his friends. But what was important to him was what was right, what was true. Even in the midst, even in the, in the heat of the argument. Well, this guy, this young lawyer, not only uh, risked his relationships with his peer group, he risked his own uh, personal standing in society. He risked his own his own personal honor and respect. He was a, a teacher of the law, somebody that everybody deferred to. He was an expert. Now, how did it look for this expert to be learning from this carpenter? And what's that going to do to his expert status? What's that going to do to the deference that people paid him in any discussion, to, to the, the personal advantage he had in, in society and in relationships as the one who knows, as the one who is smart, as the one who has the answers. He was asking questions instead of giving answers. And I think that's even harder to risk than it is to, to risk our, 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 our peer relationships. It's even harder to give up that kind of personal advantage. Several years ago, uh, I observed some very close friends of mine going through a very difficult time in their marriage. She had grown up in, in a home that was was somewhat destructive. Uh, it was a very difficult environment. She had been abused some as a child. He had grown up in a more stable, far more nurturing home life. But anyway, after they had been married for many years, uh, she began to experience a lot of instability as she started to get in touch with her, her hurt and her sense of loss from her childhood. The things that she was going through, the things that she was feeling were very confusing to both of them. And I, I remember respecting her courage to work through her pain and to discover as she worked through these things with God and, and with a counselor, to discover the, the, the lies of Satan that she had bought into, and that both of them had bought into, about who she was, about her being the, the weak one, him being the strong one, her being unrighteous, him being righteous. They, they really had, in their marriage, developed a pattern where he was the one that had the answers. He was the one that was the strong one. He was the one that took care of her. And as she began to work through this, she realized that that wasn't true and that wasn't healthy. And she began to want something more for their marriage. Again, I, I respected her, but I'll tell you, my respect for him was even greater. Because he gave up all the advantage that he had 
of being the one who was right, of being the one who was together, of being the one who was righteous in order to seek what was true and what was healthy. He had to relearn how to look at his wife. He had to to face into the fact that he had bought in to Satan's lies, that he was contributing to her pain, that he was adding to the confusion. And he had to learn, relearn how to look at her as his equal, as his partner, as his friend, rather than as his burden. Again, that took real courage to give up that personal advantage to seek what was right and true and healthy, regardless of the cost. As I said, I am, am impressed with this expert in the law. I'm impressed with his commitment to truth and to what's right, and to learning. I'm impressed with his uh, desire to know what's true, with his intellectual and spiritual honesty. But now let's take a look at the, at the question that he asked, and more specifically, uh, Jesus' reply. Again, remember, this man was an expert in the law. He studied it constantly. That was his job. That was his life. That was his passion. All the time studying the law. Experts in the law tell us there are 613 commands given by God through Moses. 613. That's just in the first five books. I don't know how many there are if you add the rest of the Bible in. But this guy was an expert in those first five books. And he knew there were 613 laws. Now that's an awful lot. He probably knew every one of them. But he struggled with how do you organize that much information? How do you respond on a daily basis to 613 rules and commandments and instructions? You know, you come here week after week, or maybe you're involved in another church where you taught week after week. And every every week it's, it's a different issue, a different thing to think about, something else to respond to. And sometimes it seems so big, almost unmanageable. There's so much to deal with. Well, what this guy was looking for was the key the one general principle that ties it all together, the one commandment that was the source and the sum of the other 612. And so he asked Jesus, which is the main one? Which is the key? And Jesus gladly tells him. Jesus says, the first commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus actually gave them two commandments, but we'll see in a second. They really merge into one. Jesus took three verses from the Old Testament. Two out of Deuteronomy, one out of Leviticus. The ones from Deuteronomy are from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. This is the preamble to the law, to the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy. When I was in grade school, I had to learn the preamble to the Constitution. I don't know about other states, but every kid, every school child in Idaho has to know the preamble to the Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, justice, preserve the domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare. Uh, Some of you teachers, come on, help me out. (laughs) Uh, Do something else uh, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do 
ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. I had to look that up and read it a couple times before I got up here. <laughs> I couldn't have done that if I was just cold. But every school child in Idaho knows that. What they know probably better is the, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance, because they say that every day. Well, see, the Shema, which is what they call this verse from Deuteronomy, the hero Israel. The word Shema means here in Hebrew. It's the first word of this line. Every child, every Hebrew, every Jewish child knew that. They memorized it. It was said at the beginning of every synagogue service. It still is today. It begins every synagogue service. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. It goes on. Every Jewish family had a, had a little cylindrical box nailed to their doorpost so they could see it when they went in, when they went out. And inside that cylindrical box is a little scroll. And written on that scroll is the Shema. Hear, O Israel. Everyone, every Jew knew that verse inside and out. So it's no surprise that Jesus chose that one. Any Jew would have chosen that one as the key verse. In fact, in in the book of um, Luke, Jesus asks another guy, what is the key commandment? And he comes up with this verse and says that's the one that it is. So this was not unusual. This was no surprise. Any Jew would have chosen that verse. But what Jesus does is he takes a little piece of another verse from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And he takes that little piece and he sticks it on the end. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And by doing that, by making that the co-most important commandment, Jesus reinterprets the Shema. You see, these religious leaders, they knew the Shema was the number one commandment. And they thought they were fulfilling it. They thought they were loving God with everything they had. But by being very religious, by taking all their time to study the Bible and argue among themselves, walk around in long black robes with a sour look on their face, keeping their noses in the air, uh, uh, ignoring the needs of the people around them, avoiding the distraction of being entangled in relationships with people, keeping off by themselves. You see what... What they were caught up in was themselves and in religion, not in loving God. And what Jesus said, that's not what loving God looks like. If you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, then you love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it looks like. Jesus reinterpreted the Shema. You see, if you really love God, you'll be interested in what he is interested in. If you really love God, His attitudes will rub off on you. If you really love God, then you'll find yourself doing what He enjoys. What God enjoys. What God is interested in. What He likes to do Himself. What reflects His character is loving people. See, the two are inextricable. You can't separate them. Loving God is not the way to dry up and and, and move away from people. Loving God is the way to truly love people. Jesus' disciple, John, in his first letter, 1 John, in the fourth chapter, he makes it very clear. He says, if you don't love people, you don't even know God, much less love Him. And later on he says, 
If anyone says, I love God, but hates their brother or sister or wife or husband or kids or neighbor, or they are lying. They're lying. They're deceiving themselves and they're trying to deceive you. The commandment is clear that those that love God must love their brother. See, if we really knew God well enough, the second commandment would have been unnecessary. The problem is we don't know Him well enough. And Jesus had to stick that one on there to guide us, to show us that really loving God leads to loving people. Now it's worth noting that He doesn't say, love God with 90% of everything you've got and use the other 10% to love people. That's a pretty good ratio. Now he says, love God with all of it, 100%, every bit of it. And as you do, involved in that, flowing out of that, motivated by that, love your neighbor as yourself. No more and no less. See, the focus is loving God. We abandon ourselves to loving Him. And we can do that recklessly because He is good and He is faithful and He will never use us. He will never abuse us. He will never abandon us. He is the only one that can take that kind of total, unreserved love. If you give that kind of love to your husband, unreserved, he's the primary focus of your love, he will hurt you. He will let you down. He will not be there for you at some point. No matter how good a man he is, he will not value you at some time in your life. And that will be crushing. If you give that kind of love to your wife, making her the primary target of your love, she's going to cut you at some point with her disrespect. No matter how great a woman she is, she's not going to understand Your children are going to use you and turn on you. And if they're the focus, the primary focus of your love, that's going to be debilitating. Your friends won't be there. They they, they won't care enough. They won't understand. And again, if they are your focus, that's crushing, that's immobilizing. You just can't give enough without using yourself up, without emptying yourself, without losing yourself. But if God is the primary focus of your love. You find Him faithful. You find Him loving and kind and generous and giving. You find Him adequate. And as you love Him, He calls you to love your husband, to love your wife or your son or your daughter or your co-worker or your neighbor. And even though they will continue to disappoint you, and hurt you, and let you down. And that will cause you pain. That will cause you a loss. You can continue to love them because you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for God. And God, who is love, will supply what you need from His love. Remember, you can love because He has first loved us. God will supply by His love for us, the resources, the filling, the the things that we need to love others. When you love others because you love God, then you have God as your partner. And He is a very wealthy and generous partner. 
By His Spirit, He supplies everything you need. The strength, the wisdom, the guidance, the perseverance. He is an infinite source. There's one more point I want to make right here, just to clear up some possible misunderstanding. When Jesus says, this is the most important commandment, Jesus isn't grading the commandments like you got the important ones, the medium important ones, and once you get below this level, these are throwaway commands. You don't have to pay any attention to those. No, Jesus says this is the first command. He uses the word protos. It's, it's the number one. It's the one commandment that is the source of all the other commandments. It's the motive for all the other commandments. It gives meaning to all the other commandments. Now let me explain. Again, if you love God, you want to please Him. If you love God, you want to, to, to honor Him, show your respect for Him. If you love God, you want to make Him proud. If you love God, you want others to see how wonderful He is. And the way that you fulfill all of these desires of love is that you obey Him. The way that you do these things, by obeying Him, You please Him. By obeying Him, you honor Him and show Him your respect. By obeying Him, others see how good and wonderful He is. Obedience is the manifestation of love. Love is the motive for obedience. And since that is true, that's what gives meaning to the rest of the commands and the instructions in Scripture. See, they are just the details, the information we need to know how to love our God skillfully and effectively. They become treasures, precious guides, information that we long for, that we want, rather than this crushing burden. You know, without love, the laws, the instructions, the the, the commandments of the Scriptures are a crushing weight none of us can carry. But when we are overwhelmed, lost in love for our God, they become our delight, our guides, our path. Just like King David, who is often lost in love for God, we can say, I rejoice in following your precepts as one rejoices in great riches. I delight in your decrees. Your statutes are my delight and my counselors. I delight in your commands, for I love them and meditate on them. The earth is filled with your love, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know, sometime read through Psalm 119 where I took these verses and see how much David valued God's word because David loved God passionately. But before my time is is completely gone, I want to get to the main point that I wanted to make. (laughs) I knew that. I get going and then... Hope I can squeeze the main point at the end. But what I really wanted to do today is I wanted you to squarely face this command. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. It is a command that you love God with everything you got. This is the one essential command In all of life, there is nothing more important or more compelling, more necessary. You know, if it was a command to obey, I could do that. I can grip my teeth. I've got the fortitude to obey, at least for a little while. 
That's not what it is. It's a command to love. Now, how do you do that? You can't just grit your teeth and fill your heart with love. What does it mean to love him? Well, the word he uses here is agape. And most of you, if you've been to church very often, have heard agape explained. Christian teachers, myself included, are fond of pointing out that agape love is not primarily an emotion. Agape love is more of a commitment, of putting somebody else's needs and interests and well-being above our own. And that's true. But see, I don't think the concept of commitment catches it either. It's a whole lot more than that. Agape love is not an emotion, but it sure isn't devoid of emotion either. See, agape love is a passion. It's a focus. It's a direction. It's a powerful force within us that moves us to action. It compels us to action. And that is what your God is commanding of you. See, agape love cares deeply for another person. Agape love is affected by what affects that other person. Agape love wants to be with that person. Agape love feels the, 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 the hurt and the offenses, feels the impact of what life does to a person, what others do to a person. Feels it perhaps even more acutely than that person. You see, agape love is the engagement of a whole person with another person. And that's what that commandment is trying to get across when it says, love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And what is that? What is all of that? How do you do that? Well, the, the word there for, for all your heart, the word heart refers to the inner life, your inner thoughts, your dreams, your desires, your hopes for the future. And to love God with all your heart means you're engaged with Him inside, in, in your inner thoughts. That your hopes for the future revolve around being with Him. That moment when you run to His arms and are reunited with Him forever. Our hopes for the future revolve around being with Him and pleasing Him. Love Him with all of your mind. That word mind refers to our our intellectual capacity, our ability to be creative and, and to think and to understand. And to love Him with all of your mind means you dedicate your thinking to understanding Him, knowing who He is, what He is like, what He likes, what He thinks, what He feels. Loving Him with all of your mind means that, that you're involved with His plans for, for your life, for your family, for, for your church, for reaching the lost, because this stuff is important to Him. And loving Him with all your strength that refers to your physical strength, your bodies, your energy. Every ounce of energy is dedicated to Him. You, you, you eat so that you can take care of this body that belongs to Him. You sleep at night so that you can wake with the energy to serve Him the next day. And that term, uh, soul, psuche, that's the most comprehensive. That's why I saved it for last. It means your life, everything about you. Literally, it means your breath. It's used in Scripture to refer to your physical life and to your, your spiritual life and your emotional life. Jesus says, love God with your very breath. The command is total. It's comprehensive. It's absolute. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading one of my favorite Christian thinkers, Jonathan Edwards, and I read this paragraph. The kind of religion God requires and will accept 
does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless inclinations that lack convictions, that raise us but a little above indifference. God, in His Word, greatly insists that we be in good earnest, fervent in spirit, that our hearts be engaged vigorously. He requires that we love Him with all that we have and all that we are. And when I read that sentence, or that paragraph, I was almost crushed. And I thought, how little passion I have for God. How little I even care about wanting to love God like that. And I became irritated with Edwards for uh, bringing that up. I mean, why tell me something I know? Why tell me I need something that I can't get? I don't know how to get it. How do you fill your heart? How do you change your heart? Let me ask you. Do you love God with all your heart? All your soul? All your strength? All your mind? Do you even want to? Does it even cross your mind? You know, he, He deserves it. He's worthy of it. He's your creator. He's shown His goodness, His generosity in what He's created, the beauty, the grandeur, the pleasure. And He's loved you. He's demonstrated His love in that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. See, He absolutely deserves your passion. He is that good. He is that loving. He is that worthy. You were made, created for passion toward God. But do you love Him, really? passionately. All I can say is God help us because we can't help ourselves. Only He can reach into our heart. Jonathan Edwards in that same article was kind enough to point toward another verse that gives the answer. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul, and you may live. You see, only God can change our hearts. Only He, by His Spirit, can break our heart and open it to be filled with that kind of love for Him. Our hearts are wounded. Our hearts are confused. Our hearts are distracted. They're too much for us. Only God can change them. But realize that circumcision is not always painless. It hurts when He cuts the things out of our lives that have captured our passion or that suppress our passion for Him, that that pull us away, keep us from Him. But remember, the result is life. The result is a heart that is free to be filled with passion for Him. All we can do is ask for it. All we can do is be willing. All we can do is desire it purpose of the law is to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we are open to His mercy, His action on our behalf. That's the purpose of this command as well. Not that we grit our teeth and make it happen, but that we realize that we cannot and we come to Him to receive His grace, His life at work in us. Let's pray. Lord, again, even as I uh, teach this passage, I'm confronted with how little... I love you, and that does break my heart, God. I want to, but only you can bring that about. I pray for each person here 
that we would catch a glimpse of your value, your worth, your love, how much you have loved us. And that we would ache to love you with everything we have, all of our heart and soul and strength, all of our minds. Lord, I pray, and I do this with fear and trembling, that you do what's necessary to capture our passion, to free it, that we could love you as you are worthy to be loved. Thank you that your son died so that we can love you like that, that he lives and lives within us to teach us and to create in us a heart that's capable of loving you. Do your work, Lord Jesus. Amen.